Everybody else find one of those good seats. You know, there's something really fun about going verse by verse through the Bible, and that is you, 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 um, you tend to stumble upon a topic that's totally unsuited for Valentine's Day. <laughs> or maybe it is. I'm sure some of you are so clever, you could, you could really find a way to make it fit. Interestingly enough, uh, Jesus, the king, is going to talk a whole lot about uh, love that's been twisted, love that's been perverted. In fact, not love at all. See, love that's been perverted isn't love anymore, is it? Love that's been twisted isn't love anymore. And that's, that's the thing is that in, in God, in Christ, we find perfect love. And I've said, I've said this to you before, but the love that we see in this book is a Savior that loves His church deeply. You know, I've said this to you before, but it, it became, I remember it became kind of cool to say, I love Jesus, I'm not a real big fan of the church. And it sounds edgy and it sounds cool and it's a good way to get all your friends to think that you're hip. But the truth of the matter is, how would you feel if someone said, I like you, I just don't like your body? How would you feel? Some of you are like, I'm not, 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 not dragging with you. Somebody said that to me. No, uh, what if you, what if, if somebody came to me and said, I love you, Jonathan, I can't stand your wife. I wouldn't be like, oh, let's sit down and have coffee. I, I would I'd be somewhat offended by this. As should you married people. You shouldn't be okay with that. Well, as long as you like me, I'm fine. I don't care what you think about her. I don't, we, we shouldn't think that way. And so, you know, falling in love with Jesus somehow, as flawed as we are, makes you fall in love with his people. And, and, and we have to understand what that love looks like because that love is not... Um, it's not hiding the problems. It's not saying that they don't exist. It's actually seeking to solve them. It's seeking to say, I love you enough to tell you something. Uh, Jesus loves us enough to fix things that are broken. He loves us enough not to let us be destroyed. I'm not sure why that verse is up there, but that's cool. It's a good verse. Praise the Lord. Do we need comfort, Levi? Is that what you're trying to say to me? Right on. We'll turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 2. He's like, if he's going to keep preaching like this, you're going to need a lot of comfort. So, <laughs> This section of scripture, maybe, maybe it's that this section of scripture is sometimes a little bit rougher, so you'll need the comfort after. You know, God is the God of all comfort. He'll, he'll kiss your owie at the end of it. If you look at a map of the churches of Asia, this is really going to be great for the people who are listening to the podcast. But if, if you looked at a map of the churches of Asia, they start out at Ephesus here on the coast. And then it, it, it goes up like this in an arc and comes down. Each one of these, so church number one, church two, church three, church four, church five, church six, church seven. We find ourselves right now in the church of Thyatira, which is right between um, the church of Pergamo and the church of Sardis. And so um, I'm sure that God is clever enough, I, I know he's clever enough, to um, have a reason that some of these letters came first and some of them will come last. And at the same time, this is just the natural progression. If you were taking a, a circuit of the churches, this is the order you'd probably hit them in. 
Uh, I've told you before, but Ephesus was often seen as the gateway to Asia Minor. And so, you know, that may be the first place. John himself lived in Ephesus, oversaw all these churches from Ephesus. Now, what's interesting is scholars are a bit divided on this, but uh, most of them believe that there were about 500 to 1,000 churches in Asia Minor at this time. When I say Asia, I'm not talking about like where the Olympics are right now. Asia Minor was a Roman province, which we now basically call Turkey. So it's not anywhere close, not really Asia at all, but that's what they called it. And John oversaw all those churches from Ephesus. And when he was put on the island of Patmos, uh, Jesus is still speaking to these churches. Now he's got a lot of churches he could talk to. But these are key churches in their region. They're, they're important churches, and they're probably uh, churches that have an influence on the other churches around them. What's interesting is that the one we're about to read tonight, Thyatira, is actually the smallest of all these churches, and yet they get the longest letter. And we all know God, God's not, uh, he doesn't judge value by the size, right? So he's not saying, this is a small church, so I really don't have much to say to you. Um, he tells them what they need to hear. And when we get there, we've probably noticed in those first three letters, they've been churches that he has mostly good, th- he has a lot of good things to say about, some correction, um, but they're churches that are undergoing some outside persecution. This next church we're about to talk about is probably undergoing outside persecution, but the biggest danger that they have is, is inner trouble, is, is, is um, compromise on the inside. So... The last church we talked about was Pergamum. And remember Pergamum? He, he had said, you guys have compromised in some areas. You've, you've let false teachers come in. And he says, you, you've, you've begun to uh, be okay with this. Or, or, rather, he says, some of them hate it, but some of them have tolerated this. And he says, you need to fix it. By the time we get to Thyatira, the, the situ, situation is much worse. The, the false teaching, the, the issues that they're facing on the inside are bigger than the situations that they're facing on the outside. I think if you study the scripture and you study church history, you find out that persecution from the outside can't destroy the church. It can't. Um, It can affect people. But church usually thrives in a state of persecution. It doesn't kill the church. Uh, Sometimes we've seen the opposite happen. A lot of times, even right now, persecution in the Middle East has not crushed the church, but the church is thriving. Um, Some of the fastest growing churches today, uh, fastest growing groups of believers are in heavily persecuted areas. So persecution from the outside doesn't kill the church. The church can't be destroyed by that. The gates of hell will not prevail against them. However, the stuff that comes from the inside, that's where the real danger is. And in this letter, we're about to read about some issues that are arising from the inside of the church that uh, have, the, have the potential to destroy the church. And uh, it has to be addressed. It's not my favorite Valentine's Day message. <laughs> but right, like, hey, I'm just a messenger here. This is Jesus. You'll notice all of these letters are in red. This is Jesus, the guy we like named our religion after. He's, he's the guy we really like, you know. I know we shouldn't call it a religion, but you know what I'm talking about. So we follow Jesus. It's all in red. So, you know, if you got a problem, talk to him about it and, and say, Jesus, I don't know why you wrote this chapter. I think it's really important. Know this, that everything Jesus says to his people is out of love. So if somehow this pokes you tonight, know that he's poking you for a reason. He loves you. And this is a good thing. In chapter 2, verse 18, it says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, 
Now remember, we went over this from the very beginning of reading this letter, but the word angel there is not talking about an angelic being, a a being with wings or a heavenly creature. The word angel in the Greek means messenger. And a lot of times in the New Testament, it's translated as an angel like Gabriel or Michael. But in this situation, he's not writing a letter to an angel. He would not need to write a letter to an angel, right? And he's not going to correct an angel. I don't know if you've read the Bible, but angels don't get second chances. They either do the word of the Lord or they rebel and they get tossed to the other side. So he's not talking to an angelic being. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the messenger of the church. You could say he's talking to the leader, the pastor. He's talking to the guy in charge. So these letters are written to to a messenger, to a pastor, who's got to convey this message. Now, a lot of times we haven't made a big deal out of that because it's still a message to the church. So whether it's going through a middleman or not, it's not a big issue, but it's a big issue in this letter. It's a big issue in this letter because of some of the things we're going to find out about what he says. It's, it's coming first to a messenger that's got to convey this to a church. Tonight, I'm a messenger that gets to convey something that Jesus said to this church, and he's saying it to us. So if we're just going to skip stuff, then ultimately that's not uh, really faithful to the senior pastor of the church, who is Jesus Christ. And when this guy got this letter... I guarantee there might have been some issues with, I don't want to bring this up. But thank God he did. And in verse 18, it says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. Now remember, we've seen the eyes of fire and the feet of bronze thing at the beginning of the book. But at the beginning of the book, he called himself the Son of Man. Now he's calling himself the son of God. We know that Jesus is both, right? But when he's talking to John at the beginning, he's, say, he's identifying in that, in that humility of being the son of man. I know what you're going through. I've been there with you. You're being persecuted. I haven't left you. I've walked with you through this. I know, what you're, I know where you live. I know what you're dealing with. But now he's going to deal with some issues That's going to cause, you know, it's kind of like daddy's home. And and there's some issues that got to get taken care of. And so now he's not coming simply as the son of man who is saying, I sympathize with you. He's coming and and emphasizing the fact that he's the son of God. And he's got a right to rule here. And there's going to be some harsh things that have to be done so that he can save the church that he loves very much. Remember that he called these churches golden lampstands. We know why they're called lampstands, because they're his lights in those regions that are influencing the, world, the darkness around them. The light is, is spreading out, confronting the darkness around them. That's what churches are supposed to be. And I don't mean churches as in organizations. I mean the body of Christ is meant to be light in dark places, spreading that light out, right? But he calls it a golden lampstand. Why golden? Because it's of great value to him. Now, if you read all these letters, you find out that these Churches have a lot of issues, but they're still of great value to Jesus. As broken as they are, as flawed as they are, they're of great value. They're still golden to him. I think we could take that to heart because we brought all our issues to Jesus and he says, you still have value. I value you and I value you enough to to not leave you in your mess, but to heal you, to point out where you need the surgery and to do the surgery. He says this, he says, I know your deeds. And we know that we've talked about the word know here in the Greek. 
means to know by observation. He said earlier, I've been walking amongst the churches. I've been, I've been walking in your midst. He doesn't know your deeds because somebody prayed about it. He doesn't know your deeds because an angel is reporting to him. He knows what's been going on because he's here. And he says, I know your deeds or I know your works. And your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance. And that your deeds of late are greater than at first. If he stopped there, this church would have reason to just like throw a party. We're doing good. Jesus says he saw our love. We're a church that's known for our love. He says he saw our faith. We're a church that's known for our faith. He says, I know your service. They're a church that's known for their service, for their ministry to people, for for reaching out. They're they're a ministry-minded church. He says, I know your perseverance. That means they didn't give up when things got hard. Anybody here think this sounds like a good church? I do. These are really good things. If that wasn't enough, he said, what you've done lately has been greater than what you did at the start. There must be, I imagine the the guy that's reading this is saying, hey, this is the kind of letter I was hoping I'd get from Jesus. Then he goes on and he says, but I have this against you. And you go, oh, I shouldn't have kept reading. To tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself, calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they may commit acts of immorality, and that word immorality we've talked about before, it specifically means sexual immorality, and eat things that are sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. All right, so this is a big issue. Was her name really Jezebel? I don't know. Seems weird that somebody would name themselves Jezebel. It's kind of got a bad rap. It's kind of like naming your kid Adolf now. Not too many people are doing it. Maybe it was a real name. Either way, it could very well be a name that he's applying. I believe it's a real woman. I know some people just say, well, it's just a spirit. Now, the way he talks about this woman, it's a person that he's talking about. He specifically says, that woman, Jezebel. She's causing some issues, whether that's her real name or not, or Jesus is obviously putting the name Jezebel because it has direct ties to Jezebel in the Old Testament. He says she's leading people astray. She's a false prophetess. You've allowed her to come in and you've allowed her to carry on and teach. And we all know that there's a different standard for somebody that's teaching. We have all sorts of messed up people that come in the doors of the church, but um, we're supposed to change, you know, we're supposed to let Jesus uh, fix what's broken and begin to heal us, but there's a certain standard when someone begins to teach the church, and the scripture says, don't lay hands on anyone suddenly, don't put anyone in a ministry suddenly until they've proven themselves a bit, and he also says, don't let many of you desire to be teachers, for if you desire to be teachers, teachers are going to fall under a stricter judgment. So this woman has has stepped into a, a position of authority, and she's not honoring that position. She is not the kind of person you need to, to, to allow to teach. I, I know some people would say, well, see, it's, the problem is that she's a, she's a woman prophet. And there's no such thing. There shouldn't be a woman prophet. Well, you haven't read the Bible. Because in the Old Testament, there's women prophets. In the New Testament, there are. It says that, that the great evangelist Philip had a bunch of daughters who were all prophetesses. So it's, that's not the issue. And if you were to take that tack, you got to look at all the places in the New Testament where it says there were men that were false teachers. You don't, you don't read that and go, I guess men shouldn't teach, you know? No, you just, that's not the issue here. The issue is, is that she's a false prophet 
who's leading people into immorality and leading them to idolatry. So she's leading them into sexual sin and she's leading them into compromise with idolatry. Now, why is this happening in a church that's known for their love, that's known for their faith, that's known for their perseverance, that's known as a ministry church? Well, I imagine the way it started is, you know, when you're a ministry-minded church, as I want us to be, and I know you want us to be, when you're a ministry-minded church, here's the temptation. Because you want to empower more and more people to do, you got a lot, there's a lot to do. Let's, let's reach out. Let's get the work done. There's a temptation to kind of take anyone that comes down the pike and just go, okay, well, you know, here, we need more people. You do this. You do this. They might not have been careful. There's another theory that really is it's a spicy one, guys. Are you ready? If you look back in the earliest manuscripts, and a lot of scholars fall down on this, you know, hold to this point. When it says that the woman Jezebel, in many of the Greek manuscripts, it uses a, it uses a, a word that, that doesn't mean the woman, but your woman. Remember, who's he writing this letter to? The pastor. There's a chance that this is the pastor's wife, which would make, like I said, it's spicy. This would make it a little bit... More understandable, and it might make it understandable why Jesus calls her Jezebel, because where was in old, the Old Testament, Jezebel was the wife of the king, who manipulated a weak-willed king into doing what she wanted him to do, which was compromising worship of Jehovah mixed with the worship of other false gods, namely Baal. So the parallels are there. I told Tia, I said, why did you have to be in nursery today, Tia? This is a good one. You should be up here. <laughs> There's a chance this is the pastor's wife. Um, <laughs> it's not my pastor's wife, though. She teaches and leads my bond servants astray. That's a heartbreaking statement. That, that word bond servants is, is the Greek word doulos, which means slave. And, and in the New Testament, it, it's used by all the writers of the New Testament, all the writers of the letters of the New Testament. Paul uses it of himself. James uses it of himself. John does. Jude does. Peter does. They all call themselves bond servants or slaves of Jesus Christ. Even though they identify as sons of Jesus, they say we've made ourselves his slaves. And that's a really good thing. That means that they're totally in. What's terrible about this is that she's led real believers astray. Not just the guys on the fringe, but real strong believers. And you, you want to know, well, how could she do this? You have to understand that the city that they're in is a city where trade unions and guilds were especially powerful in Thyatira. First time we find Thyatira in the, in the New Testament is in the book of Acts. Remember, Lydia is the, is the lady that gets saved there. She's a maker of pur purple garments. That area was well known for their purple, and purple dye was really hard to come by. There was a certain plant where you could get purple dye from, and it was super rare. And there was this little shellfish. I know this sounds, if you're a lover of shellfish, this is a, this is a little sad. But there is a little shellfish that was native to that area where if you squeezed it just right, you would get one drop of purple dye. Super expensive, super hard. But this is why their city was well known for textiles. They, 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 they had these dyes, they had these fabrics. This is what they were well known for. And so, you know, one of the first major converts is a lady who sews purple garments. They, they're known for this, but 
If you're going to get a job in most of these areas, you had to belong to a union or a guild. And each one of these trade unions and guilds had a patron god or goddess. And if you wanted to belong to it, see, listen, you could say, well, I don't want to belong to it. Well, you might not get any work. It's like Hollywood today. They can't just hire a guy to work a camera. He's got to belong to a union, right? He's got to belong to some, you know, uh, actors, got to belong to the Screen Actors Guild. In that day and age, it was even stronger. And so if you wanted to belong to that guild, you couldn't just say, well, I'm a Christian. I don't do that stuff. Many times they would pressure you that in order to belong to their guild, and if you wanted business in that town, you had to belong to it, you had to go and, and they would have meals and feasts in the temple of a false god. In fact, I think the New Testament writers would be comfortable saying a demon god, right? Because there is no such thing as a false god. There's, just, there's spirits, right? There's evil spirits that they're worshiping. And you'd go in and you'd have to have a meal in this temple. And at the end of the meal, you'd have to offer a formal sacrifice to this god or goddess. And if you said no, they'd just kick you out. So you can imagine the pressure of saying, it's going to cost me something to be a believer in this city and not bow down to this. And you can imagine how you might give in to someone who says, it's okay. You can eat this meat that's sacrificed to idols. You can go through all the, you can have the meals in the temple. You can do that because, you know, God understands. There was another teaching around that time. It's addressed a lot in the New Testament. Jude talks about it. John talks about it. Paul talks about it. And it was, it was a, a system of belief. And one of the things they believed was, was that your spirit was inherently good and your flesh, your body was inherently bad. And there was nothing you could do to change that. So they would say things like, you know, God just wants your heart. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? God cares about your heart. He doesn't care about what you do. He cares about what your heart, just your heart's good, right? Well, as New Testament believers, we understand that you can't separate that just as you can't separate the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you know? I know that this body is still not redeemed, but it's been bought with a price. It belongs to God. So I'm supposed to glorify God with my body. But you had people teaching back then, hey, you want to have sex with whoever? Go ahead. Go ahead. As long as your spirit's holy, your flesh can do what your flesh wants to do because God knows your flesh wants to do it. The people would use that rationale. Well, my spirit's still clean. It's my body that's doing this stuff, but I can't control my body. And in that way of thinking, they defiled themselves. It's, it comes up a lot. If you don't think this is a big issue, read the New Testament. It comes out on almost every letter. This kind of stuff's happening. So here... She's leading people astray, saying, you go ahead and commit acts of immorality, sexual immorality, which often was part of the ceremonies and the sacrifices that they would offer to these false gods. And it says in verse 21, here's where it gets real fun. I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her... literally translates onto a bed of suffering, and those that commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. Now, here's the great thing. God, even as messed up as this lady is, Jesus gave her a chance, right? He gave her space to repent. He says, I gave her a chance to repent. Didn't kill her right away. He's not even gonna kill her now. He's still gonna give her a chance to repent, right? 
The people that follow her, still giving them a chance to repent. But here's the thing, if you don't, he says, then you're kind of bringing this upon yourself. I'm casting her on a bed or I'm releasing her to her own destruction. I want to read you something from um, Peter's letter that, that I think, his second letter, Second Peter, that, that, that brings some light to this. Because I, I hope you do understand that this is not isolated to 2,000 years ago. This kind of stuff still pops up. And it might look a little bit different, but it still pops up. In Second Peter chapter 2, it says, but remember, sorry, let me give you background. In chapter 1, he talks about the reliability of Scripture, and he talks about how God brought it through prophets. And he said, no act of prophecy is, is a matter of one's own interpretation, but men, holy men, moved by the Spirit of God, spoke. So God used people, moved them by his spirit. They were people that belonged to him. He used them. They might have been flawed, but he used them. And he says they were moved by the spirit of God. They spoke. He says now, and he, he sets it up. This is why scripture can be relied upon. But then he gets in chapter two and he says, but false prophets also arose among the people. He doesn't say false prophets came from outside. He says they arose from among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly, so they'll be sneaky about it. You guys know that if somebody were to come in here and say, hail Satan, hail Satan. Amen? Can I get an amen? Hail Satan. You guys wouldn't go like, yeah, that guy has a point. And if somebody came in here and said, you know, we all need to listen to, we, we, we really should be, y'all should be um, watching more pornography on your computers. Um, you guys probably should steal some money from your business. You know, if you see somebody that's face bugs, you just punch them. You know, we wouldn't be like, oh, this is a good preacher. Man, I, I love this. They got to be sneaky about it, right? Remember, even, the, even, the, even Satan in the garden didn't say, hey, you guys want to pull a prank on God? You want to be real bad? No, he says, you know, Surely, God won't kill you. Surely, you could do this. Doesn't it taste good? Wouldn't you want to be like God? You know, it's sneaky. It's deceptive. And he says that these people are sneakily bringing this in. And he says, there will be false teachers who secretly introduce destructive heresies. So, when we believe this stuff, it's destroying us. What does the word destroy mean? In the Greek, even in Old English, the word destroy or destruct means to unbuild. To construct means to build. To destruct means to unbuild. So destructive means everything that God's built in your life, there's an enemy that wants to unbuild it. And he really can't do it by just being mean to you. Because he can't touch what matters. But he can do it if he gets you to start believing things that are destroying you from the inside. Even denying the master who bought them. Listen, the master who bought them, that means they're believers. These are like people that were bought by the blood of Jesus, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. I want you to see this. What does it mean to deny the master? It doesn't mean they, don't, they say, I don't know Jesus, or Jesus doesn't exist, or there's no God. In this case, this word deny means they said no to him. Can I just suggest that these might have been good people with a gift on their life? They might have been people who at one time taught good things. Might have even been prophets who prophesied good things. But at some point they said no. Out of greed, out of fear, out of pressure, out of whatever. They said no to God. They denied their master. How do you deny your master? 
You deny your master because Jesus said, why do you keep calling me Lord? Guys, it's funny you use the word Lord. I hear you use that a lot. You say Lord, you say master. Why do you keep calling me Lord and you don't do what I say? Which is a good point. We talked about that a few weeks ago. You know, quit calling me boss if you're not going to listen. Jesus says, why do you guys keep calling me Lord and you don't do what I say? So saying no to God or even not saying anything at all. You know, if you had a kid who every time you said, hey, come to the table, it's time for supper, and they just pretended they didn't hear you, you wouldn't go, oh, they didn't hear me. At some point, you go, I know you hear me. No answer is still an answer, right? Not responding to God is a response. You can't just go through life saying, well, if I don't say it out loud, it's not real. You know, we say it by what you do. So you got people sitting in church saying, I believe what you say. I believe the Bible. I believe Jesus. I believe it all. And then you you tell them what the the word says. You tell them what the Lord says. And they go, but I'm not going to do that. Well, you're saying no. You've denied the master. And, 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 And hear this, guys. Our God is so gracious. He many times will give you space to repent. But don't mistake the space to repent for a there are no consequences reality. Do you know what I'm saying? This woman had a chance to repent. She might have thought, hey, I'm doing the right thing and nothing's, I'm doing the wrong thing. Nothing's happening. I must be right. Remember Eve? I didn't die. I didn't die. Well, you did. You didn't drop dead right away. Your body didn't quit working, but something happened. And this woman says, she just keeps going. Here it says, they'll secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing swift destruction upon themselves. This is what you got to see about this woman that he's talking about. It's not God who just says, I love tossing people onto suffering. She brought this upon herself. You notice the words he used? I'll throw her on a bed. This is how she got in trouble was in the bed, guys. The bed's her problem. (laughs) He's saying, I'll leave you to your own devices. You want to see? I've been sheltering you. You want to see? It's like in the, in the Old Testament when the Israelites are walking through the desert. Scholars tell us there are many, many types. Oh, you don't even need to be a scholar. You just need to go there. There are many types of really dangerous serpents and vipers in that area. And as they walked through, somehow God was protecting them. Remember, their clothes didn't even wear out. But they began murmuring against God and complaining. And it says that serpents came out of the desert. So did God create serpents or were they there and God had just been holding them back? We can argue about that, but I think that God is kind of keeping them at bay here. And they keep murmuring and complaining and go, okay, fine. Find out what your way gets you. Well, it wasn't good. They got bit. And here they bring swift destruction upon themselves. It's like someone who says, if God is love, why does he keep sending people to hell? I don't know if you've read this, but it sure seems like he did a lot to keep you out of hell. What more do you want him to do? He gave his life. He says, it's a free gift. I'm giving you salvation. I'm giving you redemption. You go, no, I don't want that. Why are you sending people to hell? And here he is saying, I'm saving people from hell. You're sending yourselves to hell, guys. Here they've brought swift destruction upon themselves. And of course, they've got a stricter judgment because they're the ones leading others astray. But at the same time, guys, you don't get off the hook. Come on, we, we, we shouldn't be led astray. Because that same heresy that's destroying them will destroy us. Goes on and he says this. He says, 
Many will follow their sensuality. What does sensuality mean? It means doing what feels right, feels good. Maybe what's convenient. I have a feeling that the Christians in Thyatira didn't have an overwhelming urge to taste that delicious idol meat. Like, I, like meat in the temple just tasted better. I don't think that was the case. I think they felt the pressure of, if I don't, I might lose my job. Can you understand what that might be like? Some of you have had to face that reality. For me to, for me to take a stand as a believer, it may cost me something. In fact, it undoubtedly will cost you something, but you gain everything. Many will follow their sensuality. They'll, they'll do what their body wants to do. They'll do what feels good. Because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. In other words, the truth that we're supposed to be presenting to the world has now been stained. In verse 3, and in their greed, they will exploit you. Or, the, you know, the King James, I think, says make merchandise of you. They're using the people of God just to make some money, just to kind of make their own way. They'll exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. He goes on and he talks about what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. He talks about the judgment that came upon them. He talks about how the fact that the, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Isn't this good news, guys, that, that God knows how to rescue you from temptation? If you're sitting here today going, oh, shoot, I've fallen into those things. He knows how to rescue you from that. You just got to say yes. The Bible says with every temptation, he provides a way of escape. Listen, we've, I've, had, I've talked to people, for instance, on the reserve that, that, that were, were, were living with somebody that they weren't married to, and it was a struggle because they said, I, I, I don't want to keep doing this, but I feel like I have to because the reserve doesn't have houses. I'm homeless if I don't live with this person. And we, that's difficult because I've never had somebody say, you might be homeless. I've never had that threat on my life. I've always been comfortable, in, in, I mean, not, not living in a mansion, but I've always had a house. I've always had a roof over my head. So, it, you know, you, you sympathize with that, and yet you have to say, if we don't trust God, who do we trust? So trust God with this. Some of them just said, okay, well, let's just get married right now. Praise the Lord. That was good. Some of them are too hooked on having a big wedding. Don't you know that's some of our problems? We, we've bought into the idea that a wedding's got to be like a giant party that you invite half of the known world to. So they're just like, I can't afford a wedding. I said, let's just do this right here. Boom, boom, boom. Some of them, look, they were not living together because they wanted to be committed to each other for the rest of their life. They were living together because they wanted to do it. So for them, don't get married. That's probably a bad idea for you. Move out. Because the last thing you want to do is just to be, have somebody that goes, um, <laughs> Well, so I'm supposed to get married? This is a person I've known for three weeks. Um, you say I got to get married? All right, we're getting hitched. No, in that case, just move out, work it out. But I understood that it cost him something to obey the Lord. But guys, if we can't obey Jesus when it costs us something, we're not really trusting. He's your shepherd. He's your caretaker. He'll take care of you. And you might be sitting here all holy saying, well, what? It's not my issue. Well, address your issue. Let God address your issue. I, the worst thing for me is when someone hears a message and they're constantly peeping over here, they're looking back here. Like, you know, I hope this person's here. You know, let's just say, what is God saying to me tonight? Because the Pharisees, that's how they listen to messages. But it says the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. So that, that means that the godly people will be tempted. 
right? But God will rescue you. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. It goes on and it's not good. And you could read the rest of this chapter. But I want to read you something from verse 17. It says, These are springs without water. They're mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires. So they'll get you on their side by telling you you can do what you want by sensuality. Those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. And this is the thing, is that, you know, I used to say as a teenager, I used to say to my friends who'd say, you know, let's go, let's, you know, they would, they would offer me some, well, you know what they'd offer me. They'd offer, they'd offer you stuff you should not be smoking, you should not be drinking, right? And I used to say, as a, I, I never partook in it, but I used to say as a kid, I can't do that, I'm a Christian. I can't do that, I'm a Christian. I can't go with you, I'm a Christian. Which is a really wimpy way of going through life. Because basically what I'm saying is, what if I could? Boy, does that look tasty. I want to, can't, because I'm a Christian. Knowing that God is not saying, hey, don't do that stuff because I hate when you have fun. He's saying that's going to destroy you. So I was viewing slavery as freedom I just wasn't allowed to have. Rather than flipping it around and realizing I've been set free from that. I don't have to do that. Thank God. So he says, the way they're getting these people on their side is they're saying, hey, you're free. You're free. Come on. Jesus has set you free. Do what you feel like doing. Do whatever you want. And, and, and what the scripture is saying is it's actually slavery. You're actually selling them into slavery because you've been overcome by this. He doesn't have very kind words for these guys who are leading others astray. In fact, Jesus said, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, you might as well tie a millstone around your neck and jump in the water. And, and that's not the Jesus that we paint with the sheep in his hands. That's, the, that's not a fun one. And I wouldn't recommend that you do that. I mean, I'm sure he's... I think it'd be better to repent than to jump in Bud Miller Lake with a stone around your neck. It would be better... Well, I'll keep reading. For if... After they've escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and, over, and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Those are some Valentine's Day images for you just to enjoy. <laughs> you could, just remember, you guys could be eating a nice meal with a candlelight or whatever, but you chose to be here, so this is what you get. My dad had a, had a habit of reading verses like that on Sundays right before everybody left for lunch. So the last thing you'd remember before you went for lunch was a dog returning to its vomit. Fun stuff, yeah? Going back to Revelation, he says he's going to throw her on a bed of suffering. And he says, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. It's a fascinating thought. 
God never withdraws the offer of repentance. He could have just said, I'm done with you. He didn't. He gave him another chance. He's already given him a chance. He gives him another one. And he says, therefore, I almost skipped the wrong letter. He says, and I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. He says, I searched the minds and hearts. Literally in the Greek, it says, I searched the kidneys and the hearts. Anybody have an idea why they would translate kidneys as minds? Because the Greeks believe, they use the term kidneys as your innermost. So when they use that term, it's not just talking about your, your thoughts, but your innermost thoughts. They believe that, you know, you have these levels of consciousness. You have an idea, you have what you believe, but... When he talks about, I'll search your kidneys, he's talking about what you're really thinking on the inside. Your innermost thoughts. I search this. Remember, he introduced himself at the beginning of this letter as the son of God who has eyes of fire. Eyes that search. Eyes that know. I think you've, you would agree with me that one of the most beautiful things about being married is to have someone that knows you and still loves you. That you're not... You know, when you went on dates, you uh, somehow put your best foot forward, but that, that can't work for too long. Once you get married, they begin to know you in a very obvious, very, like, they see you first thing in the morning. They smell your breath first thing in the morning. They see you at your low spots. They, you know, they clean up after you when you make a mess, or you do vice versa. And the fact that we have a Savior who searches our deepest thoughts and souls and still loves us is the most pure picture of love I can think of, that God loves you, that he who knows you better than you know yourself loves you. And you'll come up with all these reasons why he shouldn't love you. He shouldn't possibly love you. And you'll say, it's because I'm not worthy of him. And I know all these things that he doesn't know. He actually knows more than you know. And he's chosen to love you. And he put a value on you that was, the, the, the cost for your life was his life. That's the value that's placed on you. It's an amazing thought. And so when you see him say, I search your hearts and minds, you have to know he has, he has counted you valuable enough to search your hearts and minds and then tell you how to get out of the mess you're in because he calls you golden, because he loves you. Have you ever been loved that deeply by anyone else? You haven't. There's no one that loves you like this. You know that when someone loves you, they won't let you continue to do the things that are killing you. And Jesus, at the same time, is not going to force anyone to do the right thing. He still is giving them the choice. You have to turn around. You got to turn around. People have this fatalistic idea. If God wanted me to serve him, he'd make me serve him. But that's not what he says here, is he? He says, I urge you to repent. If you don't repent, this is what's going to happen. I'm giving you a chance to repent. Listen, don't turn down Jesus' his, his mercy. Don't, don't take it lightly that this mercy has kept you going for this long. You might be in a space. If you have denied the master, and I realize many of you, you might say, I, I gave up my rights a long time ago. But if you deny the master, don't take lightly that you might be in that space of repentance. And don't think that, that, well, it doesn't seem like there's any consequences. And you, you might think, well, is God an angry God? Listen, I don't read anger from this. I see a loving God who's righteous, who's holy, but loving. 
Because if he was purely a judgmental God, he would have killed them a long time ago. He didn't. So why is he being so severe? Because he's saving his church. This is going to kill the church. It's going to kill the church. If they don't handle it, this church that's known for their love, this church that's known for their faith, this church that's known for their work, this church that's known for their charity work in the community is going to die. So the surgeon says, you may look good right now, but there's a tumor growing. And if you don't let me remove it, it'll get bigger. And if it gets big enough, it'll kill you. So please let me do surgery. That's what the Savior's saying. We should never mistake his mercy for his apathy. He is not apathetic about us. He says, I'm giving her a chance. I'm giving them a chance. But if not, this is what's going to happen. They've brought this upon themselves. And, and you know, I, uh, let me tell you, I'm not the kind of guy who takes pleasure in looking somebody in the eye and goes, you're, you're messed up. You're doing wrong things. I want people to come out of the pit and onto the rock because I think that's what God wants. But sometimes you just got to be truthful with someone. You're doing nobody any favors. We said when we were talking about Pergamum. Remember, I, I mentioned to you that there's, you know, dumb kids doing a, eating Tide Pods for YouTube. Really dumb. I have no problem calling them dumb. Because the ones that are doing it are not kid kids. They're like old enough to know better. Somebody's got to look them in the eye and say, you're an idiot. Stop it. It's killing you. That will kill you. Don't do this. I don't care how many views you get. Don't do this. It's a bad idea. He loves them enough to search their heart. Give them the way out. He says, I know how to rescue the ungodly from temptation. He goes on and he says this. This is getting to the good part. I say to you, well, the, the, all the parts of the good part, come on. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira. Could also be translated, I say to you, and I believe the King James says it this way. I say to you and the rest who are in Thyatira. Which is interesting because who's he writing to? Remember, the first recipient of this letter is the pastor who's made the big boo-boo of letting this woman take over the church. And yet God says, Jesus says, but I say to you and to the rest who have not, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you it's an interesting statement, isn't it? Jesus says, for those of you who have not gone down this path, I place no other burden on you. I'm not here to condemn you. I don't place any other burden on you. He says this, nevertheless, what you have, hold fast, hold on tight until I come. He who overcomes and who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I'll give him authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we'll address that last part of the letter later because there's some really deep, good things in there. He didn't lump everybody together. I want to ask a question. I want to ask how we judge the success of a church. What are we looking for? I think most of us, if we see a church that's growing, we say it's healthy. 
If we see a church that seems to be doing a lot in the community, we say it's doing well. If, if, it's, if we go walk into a just church service and we feel the love amongst people, we'd say this is a good church. God is here. Because God is love, right? I would say that's evidence of God, right? They've got great faith. They're doing things. They're serving. They've got ministry all over the place. We would say this is a healthy church, and yet Jesus doesn't say they're not doing good. He, in fact, applauds them for it. Says you're doing better than you started. But he is not afraid to say there are some things that are going to torpedo this whole church if you don't fix it. Sometimes we're too quick to judge by, well, everything seems to be going well. I must be doing the right thing. That's not always the case. We, we can't reject the voice of the Spirit speaking to us saying, right now, it's mercy that's kept you from being consumed. But don't take that mercy lightly. Respond to that mercy. This church is a good church, but it's also a very dangerous, in a very, very dangerous place. It's a church that's allowed deep sexual immorality and compromise in the church. I wouldn't call that a good church. So, you know, as, a, as, a, as a, somebody who loves reading the scriptures and tries to understand them, I don't know how these things go together. Because if I were to have a pastor coming to me and saying, is it possible to have a church where we're, we're letting ourselves go morally, we're, we're, uh, we've got people teaching immorality and teaching that it's okay to commit idolatry, do you think my church will do well? I would say absolutely not. You're not going to see anything from God, and yet somehow this church is doing okay on the outside, but there's a rot on the inside. So when I see this, I, I recognize that sometimes God's work <laughs> is so big that we might be doing a lot of things wrong, and he's still going to do good things amongst us, but that you can't expect that these Leading people into a destructive heresy is not eventually going to destroy the good that's there. So he says, you guys that are not involved in this, hold tight to what you have. Keep on doing what you're doing. When I read these letters, I, of course, as a pastor, I, I, I think about my church. I think about you guys. I think about Loon Lake. I think about the people that I've been given um, a place to lead. So I think about that, but I also, when I read these letters, I think about me as a person. And um, I really want the Lord Jesus to be able to say, you've listened to me, you, you followed me, and how do we follow him? We follow him, Jesus said in John 10, you follow me because you hear my voice, right? So right now, you're hearing his voice, he's talking. And Hebrews says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. The dangerous thing about going to church, I'll tell you the dangerous thing about going to church is you're going to hear the voice of God. You should, if we're preaching out of his word, if his spirit's there, you should hear God more than one time. And the dangerous thing about that is if you don't plan to do anything with that, you'll only get harder. Because God never called the pagan nations hard of heart, but he called his people hard of heart because they heard his word and did not do it. In fact, he says about the Israelites, you heard my word, you saw my deeds, and yet you did not listen. You hardened your heart. Jesus said in the boat, 
Did you pay attention when I fed all those people or have you hardened your heart? Everything we see, everything we hear that God is doing, you have an opportunity to either respond to it or to harden your heart to it. So when God speaks, listen, I had a woman email me one time, once again from Makwasegagan. She emailed me and she had just come to the Lord and I was so excited for her. Her life had been so broken. She had been abused multiple times in many different ways and, and, and relationships were broken. And sometimes with a person like that, all you want to do is just tell five people, hey, just hug this lady. <laughs> you know, because you just know that what she's gone through has been so deep. And yet you see the healing hand of Jesus one by one. He doesn't, he doesn't condemn her, he accepts her. But here's what he did. Because I'm thinking, this lady, she's doing a lot of things that she probably shouldn't be doing. I don't know what to address because she just came to the Lord. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, she emails me. She says, she just starts listing these things. She says, I know, she said, I know nothing about the Bible, but I, I know that these things aren't right, but I don't know how to get out of it. And I said to her, and this is what I believe clearly, because it was obvious to me that the voice of the Lord had spoken. She heard the master's voice and she was soft towards it. I said, you know what? Because she, here's the problem. She was saying, I got all these issues, but I don't know how to fix it. I said, whenever you hear the voice of God, now listen, that doesn't mean you're waiting for something to come down to you in your room. When you open your Bible and the Lord speaks through it, God is speaking. God can speak to you in your bedroom. And he could do it audibly. He could do it inside. But it's also, you can't say, I'm reading this, but I'm not hearing God. You're, this is his word. It's alive. She had heard the voice of the shepherd and she just didn't know how to do it. And I said, anytime you hear the voice of God, the voice of God always comes with the grace of God. So anytime you hear his command, you now have the strength to do it. When he said, stand up on your feet, the cripple now had the ability to stand on his feet. When he said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth, a dead man now rose from the dead. When God speaks to us, when he said to Joshua, be strong and of good courage, strength and courage came to Joshua. So if you're sitting here today and, 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 and the Lord is so good as to say, listen, he may not be saying this to you. He may be saying, all right, you, part of your job is to encourage the people not to fall into these traps. He may be saying, just, just, just know that this is my mercy. But he may be saying to you tonight, this is, this is something you need to pay attention to. And if that's the case, don't be afraid of saying, what will happen if I follow the shepherd? Because once the shepherd speaks, when he speaks, he provides the strength. He provides the grace to do it. When he said to you, follow me, you couldn't have fallen, followed him on your own strength. But when he said, follow me, he empowered you to follow him. Right? When he said to Peter, come out on the water. Now Peter can walk on the water. So I've, I've learned that, that anytime the Lord calls me to a, a, a stretching place where I feel like I am not ready for that. I don't want to hear that. Don't tell me this, please. I'm not ready for it. I can't do that. If he told you, you can. Don't sit here saying, well, God didn't say that to me. If it says it in his word, he said it to you, right? Because <laughs> that, that could be an easy loophole. God never said to me, I need to stop killing people. The Lord's never said that. I've, I, you actually hear, no, I'm using an exaggeration, but I've actually heard people say that. The Lord's never dealt with me about that. And you go, 
What does he need to do here, guys? Does he need to write a new book? Is this one not good enough? You know, I mean, I think he said enough. The Lord's never dealt with me about punching my child. I've never felt the voice of the Lord say, stop hitting him in the face. You don't need to hear a new commandment here, guys. He's already said it. So, so don't use that as a loophole. God hasn't spoke. Listen, you got this? He spoke. He spoke. This is his word. It's alive. But I'll tell you, there'll be times I show up at a church and I think I got it all together. Like that rich young ruler who came to Jesus said, I've kept the commandments all my life. He actually thought he'd kept all the commandments. I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus says, well, this thing you lack. I found that I've come into church saying, I keep all the commandments. I've got nothing else to fix. I'll sit on the front row thinking I've got nothing to fix. It's a really dumb place to be, but I do it anyways. I say, I got nothing else to fix. And the Lord says, oh, what a low opinion you have of yourself. What a low opinion you have of me. Come up higher. And he'll point something out and go, oh, man, I wish you hadn't said that. I thought I was doing fine. But he doesn't say that to condemn you. He says that to draw you closer to him to make you more like him. This is a good thing, guys. The fact that God is calling you to change means you're alive. Means you're alive in him. The fact that you feel icky when you do something you shouldn't do means you have the Holy Spirit. These are all very good things. Don't be discouraged when you're corrected. Be encouraged that it means you're his. Because in the book of Hebrews, it says, the kid that doesn't get any discipline is an illegitimate child, but a real son, a real daughter, he's going to speak to and he's going to say, we can fix this. Let me fix this. Amen? So I don't know. I'm glad nobody here is tonight with the name Jezebel. I'm glad that's not the name your mom gave you. But uh, I bet you could find some parallels, hey? We don't live in Thyatira. But I bet if we wanted to, we could go on YouTube and find a preacher who told us we could live like we wanted to live. Couldn't we? Scripture says, in the last days, you'll heap to yourself teachers who will say things in accordance to your own lust. If you want to look hard enough, you can find someone who will give you a license to do anything. But I'd rather find someone that loves me. It's much better to have someone that loves you than someone who wants your money or wants your loyalty. Ultimately, when we're, listen, I realize this is not the only place you're hearing a message. We, we live in a wonderful day and age where you can, you can hear preaching, teaching, prophecy from all over the place. Can I encourage you to, 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 to judge wisely what you listen to and who you listen to and, and find somebody who's going to speak the truth to you in love, you know, and ultimately trust that you have no teacher above the Holy Spirit. So, you know, one of the things that Jezebel did that a lot of the Gnostics did was that she said, I've got deep things for you. Remember, he said, they haven't gone after these deep things, the so-called deep things. You find that a lot of false teachers will lure you in with an idea that somehow they've got a deeper revelation or a deeper truth. In Colossians, it comes up a lot. And Paul just says, you know, because they would say, come to me, follow me, and I'll give you the treasures of my wisdom. He says, don't you know all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ? So what more do you need? John addresses the same thing. He says, you guys don't need more teachers. You said, he says, you have the anointing. The Holy Spirit which abides within you is able to teach you all things. Because people were saying, you need me to go to the next level. He says, no, you don't. So I bet we could be led astray by somebody who gives us an easy loophole that we're looking for. 
or somebody that offers us maybe a deep, deep, deep thing that we feel is sort of spooky but exciting. Instead, look for the master and listen for his voice. It'll bear the fruit. It'll bear good fruit in your life. So I encourage you today, listen, I don't know what God said to you through this letter. I hope he said something. Let's take it to heart. Let's not take it lightly. And let's realize that he loves the church. He loves us. He loves you. He loves you deeply, more, more deeply than anyone else. And sometimes it's a lack of love that says, I don't want to tell you what you need to hear. It's a proof of love when someone will tell you the truth to your face. Thank you, Jesus, for that great love. Amen. Stand with me tonight. Let's pray.